Verbally Effective with Ina Esco is an interview-style podcast that intersects art, culture, politics, and entertainment with a Memphis focus with producer Sanaa Marie. Each week, I'm joined by a featured guest with roots in Memphis. Verbally Effective delves into each guest's personal journey to uncover the incredible stories fueling their purpose the highs and lows of their pursuits, and how through their passion, they are moving the culture forward. Be sure to follow Verbally Effective and Ina Esco on Instagram. Also, download the Verbally Effective podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play Music. Don't forget to check out the website and submit to be a guest at verballyeffective.com. guys this is april talbert of gabby grace boutique hanging out in the studio with my girl ina esco on the verbally effective podcast hi i'm clarissa joy and i'm hanging out with ina esco and the verbally effective podcast hi i'm rachel knox and i'm verbally effective because our cultural sector needs as many advocates as possible Sweeties are only as strong as their strongest creators, and in this episode, you'll get to hear why. Rachel Knox serves as the program officer for the Thriving Arts and Culture and Engaged Leadership and Civic Pride Portfolios at Hyde Family Foundation, where she manages approximately $2.2 million per year in grants to area nonprofits. Previously, she worked for Innovate Memphis as a program associate at the Orpheum Theater as the manager of teacher professional development and community partnerships. Rachel graduated with her master's in public policy and administration from American University in December of 2019. Previously, she completed her Bachelor of Fine Arts in Theater from the University of Memphis with a concentration in costume design and technology. In 2015, Rachel Knox ran for city council and made it into a runoff. In 2016, Ms. Knox was nominated as one of the Memphis Flyers 20 under 30 and received the Salzburg Global Seminar Fellowship for Young Cultural Innovators in the Arts. In 2018, she was named one of the 40 under 40 Urban Elite recipients. Rachel currently serves as the board president of The Collective, a nonprofit black cultural organization that elevates black artists, empowers black communities, and shifts the culture of Memphis by providing space for emerging artists. Verbally effective, your double E, Ina Esco here. Thank you guys so much for rocking with me on the Verbally Effective podcast. That's right, we are still undergoing, of course, COVID-19. However, we're still pushing these podcasts out. We're still talking to so many of the wonderful people that make the city of Memphis thrive. And today I have with me culture advocate, philanthropist, and she's also the Hyde Foundation program officer. Her name is Rachel Knox. How are you, Rachel? I'm doing well. How are you doing today? I am wonderful. I'm so glad you agreed to 
talk with me today on the Verbally Effective Podcast. I've been following you on Twitter for quite a while and you're doing some great work and I'm excited that you can share your journey with us today, Rachel. Absolutely. I'm so excited to be on the show today and to talk about my work and just how much I love Memphis, honestly. Yes. So what part of Memphis are you from, Rachel? So I grew up in Cherokee Heights. Um, That's the neighborhood adjacent to Orange Mound, and that's where my family is from. Um, But I live out in East Memphis now. Okay. So Cherokee Heights. How was it growing up in that area? I loved it. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things that um, was so interesting to me that I feel like is missing now kind of in society was like, I knew all my neighbors, like all of them, like everyone around our block I knew and they knew me and it was such a, a, just a close knit community and everyone looked out for one another and it was expected and you trusted each other. And so, um, you know, I loved just growing up in that neighborhood and, riding bikes and playing outside and, and all of that stuff. And so it was, it was a really great way to grow up. Wow. So tell me about your upbringing and your family. Are you an only child? Do you have siblings? Yeah, no, I'm an only child. And uh, all my friends definitely say that I act like an only child. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm very decisive about what I want to do. And, uh, and I think that comes through in my work and I try and, you know, t- temper it a little bit, but, uh, you know, when you, you have work to do, that's, that's what you do. Um, I grew up with my, my grandparents actually and my mom. Um, we stayed with them until I was about 15 and then we moved out to East Memphis where I am now, um, to just be a little bit closer to, uh, school. Um, I actually attended Houston High School in Germantown. So, okay. um, yeah, Houston Mustang. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Houston. Okay. What were you busy doing at Houston High School, Rachel? I was busy doing theater, which should come as no surprise now that yes. I am managing all of the arts and culture work. So, okay. um, that's where I first kind of discovered my love of the performing arts and, um, and lost a bet actually, which is how I wound up trying out for my first play and, and fell in love with it. Um, and then went on from there. Wow. So when you were in theater at Houston high school, did you have hopes of becoming an actress or no? <laughs> oh no. That was like, <laughs> um, I, so I didn't, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Like I enjoyed performing and, you know, I enjoyed like, you know, being around the other cast members and, um, but I was really interested in a lot of like the technical aspects of, of mm-hmm. theater. So, um, I, when I graduated from Houston high school, I was accepted into the university of Memphis and I declared, um, theater as my major mm. and I went in as a performance major because I, you know, I knew about technical theater, but hadn't been exposed to it, you know, more broadly. And, uh, and then I got to, uh, you know, to university of Memphis and everybody has to take one performance class and one technical class their freshman year, regardless of what their discipline is. And I took my first tech class and fell in love with it. And I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. I don't, I don't ever want to be on stage ever again. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. And so that's actually my, my undergraduate degree is actually in costume design and technology. Um, mm. And yeah, I loved it. 
casting design and technology. What does that curriculum look like, Rachel? Like, how did your studies go with casting design and technology? Yeah, so with, you know, costuming, we were in charge of, like, all of the, um, you know, clothes that the actors wore, whether it was, you know, shopping for a modern show, um, which I think is just as challenging to have clothes that really um, showcase a, a, a person's personality or, um, you know, even in some ways, like, obscures what kind of person they actually are on stage, um, to actually building costumes from scratch. And um, one of my favorite uh, projects that I I was able to do. I'm obsessed with Christian Dior as like a fashion label and the history <laughs> of that house. And uh, and so I actually got a chance to build um, a replica of Christian Dior's new look. And wow. so that was you know the coat with the wasp waist and the then the flowy mm-hmm. skirt. And that's ever anyone who knows me knows that's like exactly my style today. And so um, yeah, it was really it was really interesting. And just a really wonderful opportunity to work on that show. Um, and I enjoyed doing that until I had to take an arts administration course. And then I was like, well, actually, maybe I really liked to, the administrative parts of, mm-hmm. you know, art and theater even more than the technical aspects of it. So, mm-hmm. um, so then I started looking for those opportunities. Wow. Now, as a major in the arts, what what is the biggest lesson that you think you've learned from an education standpoint about the arts? Sure. So I think one of the things about the arts that people have to understand is that it's universal. I think lots of times um, individuals, especially parents, right? Like my folks, and I was like, I'm going to be a theater major. They were like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> we don't want to discourage you, but is that really what you want to do? Right. So um, but it is, you know, it's a it's a universal subject. Not only do you learn a lot about people and you learn those soft skills like working with really difficult people, um, learning to pro- like problem solve in the moment, um, all those things. You know, it's, it, it allows you the opportunity to really grow and, and think outside the box as far as that kind of creative problem solving. Yes, definitely. Now, Rachel, after you graduated from the University of Memphis, what was next for you? So after I graduated from University of Memphis, I attended, um, I didn't attend, I received a fellowship at um, Arena Stage in Washington, D.C. for audience development. So I left Memphis and I went to live in D.C. for a year. Um, and Arena Stage was an incredible opportunity. First of all, it was the first time I'd ever lived outside of Memphis, and I was um, basically by myself. Mm. Um, I did have family up there, which was nice, but I was like, I was like, I just want to see, as, as a person who's only lived in Memphis, can I survive like anywhere else? <laughs> like, if will right. I die if I leave the city of Memphis? So <laughs> right, and I know DC was a big change for you. Oh my gosh, it was such a culture shock um, and just learning how to navigate the city and, um, you know, that was it, that was incredible. Like, public transportation, you know, I think that a lot of people complained in D.C. about it because, you know, metros are hot and they don't always run on time and all those things. But, like, having just that convenience of being able to get on a bus and being taken to a metro and all of those things were just, like, absolutely incredible to me from coming from Memphis where, you know, you have to have a car basically if you want to get around, um, in a reasonable amount of time. And Mm -hmm. so 
also being in D.C., I think, really sparked my interest in, in policy and how, um, you know, how, how good policy can really impact the city for um, the better or, you know, vice versa if it's not a good policy. So, I mean, I, I love my time in D.C., and I really love my opportunity at Arena Stage, learning how to um, create a really effective audience development strategy and what mm-hmm. it looked like to really be authentic and to invite people into the conversation instead of telling people what you think that they need to do um, to be a part of something. So it was it was a great learning experience, especially coming out of undergrad for that to be my first experience. Wow. How long were you in D.C.? I was in D.C. for a year. Um, I tried to renew my fellowship, but then they they cut my particular fellowship, so I came back home. Um, And I was really bummed about it. And, and like, that was the other thing was I, the the culture, like, the opposite culture shock after living in D.C. for a year when I came home and I wanted to go somewhere. I was like, I'll just catch a bus. And I was like, oh, how will I do that? I have to (laughs) get back in my car and drive everywhere. Right. Right. Um, yeah, so I had kind of a reverse culture shock, but um, came back home, and then, you know, after I think about a month, I was hired at the Orpheum Theater in their education department. Wow, the Orpheum. I absolutely love going to the Orpheum, to a show, to a play. Tell me about your role with the Orpheum at that time. Absolutely. So, yeah, I I think everyone enjoys going to the Orpheum. It's such a, a magical place to mm-hmm. go um, to go see a show, um, and it's also great that we have such high caliber Broadway performances that come to Memphis um, because of the Orpheum. Um, my role at the Orpheum, I worked as their manager of teacher professional development and community partnerships. So um, a lot of the lessons I learned at Arena Stage in D.C., I was able to apply to my work at um, the Orpheum Theater. And my job primarily um, was to uh, distribute 6,000 tickets to students in the tri-state area, so in Tennessee, Mississippi, and Arkansas, um, who would not otherwise be able to afford um, to purchase a student ticket to see shows like The Very Hungry Caterpillar or Clifford the Big Red Dog live. And mm-hmm. so um, so my job was to read applications from teachers and to figure out how to, you know, disperse those tickets. Um, and I, I, you know, I created a lot of great relationships with a lot of the faculty and staff at a lot of the local schools. And it just really taught me a lot about Memphis that I had not encountered previously so um you know I I, one of the things that was really meaningful to me was a lot of our students um they don't get a chance to leave their neighborhoods and Mm -hmm. so everything is very theoretical to them including like the Mississippi River and I will never forget this one little boy when his school finally came through the door to be seated he said did you know the Mississippi River's outside? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, I saw it. He's like, it's so big and it's just out there. And I was Mm -hmm. like, yeah. And it was so cute because like the field trip to the Orpheum was great. And he was astounded by the building too. But he also was just like shocked that we had this beautiful, natural, you know, feature that's right by the city that, you know, he didn't even know existed. And so um, it really, it really made me, 
um, learn a lot more about what was happening in the city of Memphis and really made me more cognizant of the challenges that so many people in our city face. Yes, definitely, definitely. I know that felt good inside to be a part of, you know, exposing these kids to, you know, more than what they've seen before. I know that felt so good, Rachel. Absolutely. It was hands down my favorite thing about working at the Orpheum because I think any time that you have an opportunity to help another person to expand you know, their opportunities that, that like, that's it. Like that, I think is the point of life is to be able to help someone else. Definitely. Definitely. Now, just reading over your background and your history, you have been involved in quite a few major events in your life. <laughs> now, one that sticks out with me is that you actually ran for city council in 2015. Tell me how that came about. Yes. Yeah, so, um, yeah, that was one of those moments that I think has been one of the most impactful and, and informative in my life. So um, so this was around the time where we just had the, the school merger between Legacy Memphis City Schools and Legacy Shelby County Schools. And, uh, and I, I was still working at the Orpheum, so I was working with a lot of those people. And I remember, like, it was such so difficult to get that merger um, accomplished and then afterwards um, a lot of my teachers either they you know lost their jobs they were moved to communities that they didn't have like those kind of relational ties with and I remember just being very frustrated by the entire process and also very disappointed in myself that I didn't speak up and at least you know express my opinion and so Around that time, um, the city council also um, was deciding to cut the, the pensions for or change the, the benefits for uh, the city workers. So mostly mm-hmm. police and fire would be the largest groups that were affected. And then also, of course, um, you know, the other people who work within the city of Memphis. And I remember thinking, oh, you know, you know, it doesn't seem like this is you know, as, as thoughtful as it could be, it doesn't seem like maybe folks have been invited really to, to have, you know, legitimate discussions. And even though this doesn't affect me, I know that I didn't speak up in something that actually wound up affecting me a lot. So I am going to speak up in this instance. And so I did. And then um, someone was recording the speech that I made to the city council and it went as um, Lauren Reddy like to call it uh, Memphis viral because the <laughs> video was circulated <laughs> circulated mostly in Memphis. And so, um, not to get a big head, she's like, "Yeah, yeah it's Memphis viral." I was like, "Okay." Um, so, yes. uh, and so, um, but that instance like got me more involved in like local politics. And even though I was there for that specific issue being in meetings all day or listening to them while I was at work, I realized that there were much larger issues at play. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I thought, you know, if we want things to change, then we have to be able to step out of our comfort zone and try to change them by running for office. So, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, getting involved. And so I, I made that challenge to myself. And then I, like, waltzed into a family dinner, and I was like, 
So anyway, I'm running for city council now, and my family is like, what? Literally, what is happening? First the theater major, now this. Like, um, But they were, you know, they've been supportive. They know that I, like, will will get really passionate about something and pursue it to its absolute end. So, um, you know, I think the year I ran was um, really exciting. We had a lot of millennials running that year. So Mm -hmm. uh, now Commissioner Lowry ran that year. Uh, we had uh, Victoria Young, who is the owner of Spin Colt, and brought, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, the uh, Dinner on Blanc to Memphis, yes. and, you know, a number of other young folks ran that year, and uh, and so my race wound up going into a runoff, which was exciting, um, but also very stressful, because I was still working full-time, and I think that was when I really learned that even though the political system should be for people the average person who is trying to make their community better it's a system that's not at all set up for people who have to work people who um you know are maybe not able-bodied people who are you know historically disenfranchised it really is for people who have a lot of resources and a lot of time and i think that that is um not only very frustrating but you know something that has to change within um, how our electoral process runs. So yeah. um, I didn't win, win the election, but I learned a lot of good lessons, and I also um, have been able to support, you know, a second wave of, you know, young progressive candidates who really care about the city of Memphis. And to see Mike Lynn Easter serve on city council now is just, you yes. know, absolutely exciting. And I'm, you know, exceptionally proud of the work that she's done. Yes, I actually just met her at a fundraising event on uh, Saturday for the Fraser Community Schools. She's awesome. She I, is. Yes. And we've known each other for a while. It was hilarious because the first time I met Mike Lynn was after I'd, I'd moved to um, from the Orpheum to Innovate Memphis to work on d- various projects for the city. And uh, one of them was a, a park uh, group and I met at uh, Michael and through her work with our grass out roots and like uh, and then later when she was running for city council she retold that story she's like yeah that Rachel is this girl who came up to me and she was so energetic and she's like hi I'm Rachel I want to work with you and I was like yeah that feels on brand honestly <laughs> yes yes wow do you think that you'll ever run for another public office position again I don't think so, um, and it's not because I, you know, have sour grapes or, um, you know, don't think it's important. I obviously think it is and will do anything for, you know, the, the people who want to, um, you know, who aspire to those positions. But really, um, I aspire to, to a mission, and I feel like my mission is to help people in any way I can. And I feel like I have the opportunity to do that in my work in a different way um, than running for political office. And the truth of the matter is we need good people everywhere, not just political office, but it certainly wouldn't hurt if we had good people (laughs) in in elected offices. But um, I also want to help to emphasize the importance of having good decision makers, thoughtful leaders in other spaces that aren't politics also. Exactly. And you know what? That's a good segue 
um, into what we're about to talk about now. We're going to kind of fast forward. And I want you to tell the verbally effective audience about the collective and your role as the board president. Sure. So the collective is um, a nonprofit arts organization whose purpose is to elevate um, black artists and black communities through our work. And so the collective um, is a consortium of, of black artists from various backgrounds and disciplines. Um, we mostly focus on visual artists, but we also have performing artists. Um, and we hope to be able to bridge the gap and use culture, which is so intrinsic to um, any strong community having culture, whether that's food or dance or music or whatever, um, to use those culture creators as really a springboard to really inspiring and empowering black communities that are oftentimes um, disinvested due to poor um, public policy and, quite frankly, really insidious policies um, that are, are made particularly to harm black and brown communities. Wow. And, you know, I, I know there are so many great artists that are involved with the collective. Can you tell us about, you know, some of those Memphis creative artists that we should know about and why? Sure. Um, so I would say that um, Lawrence Matthews, who's actually the director of programming at the collective, is definitely an artist that you should uh, know about. I mean, there are so many multi-talented artists, and I think Lawrence is definitely one of those people. He is um, a musician who goes by the name Don Listed. Um, if you want to check out his music, he's also a visual artist, um, and he is constantly just doing various and sundry projects and, and just incredible. Um, I would also uh, add on that list um, Lester Merriweather, who has is a more established artist in the city of Memphis, a visual artist. Um, and he, I, I love his work because um, it's always a critique around especially white supremacy and like how we look at kind of everyday objects sometimes and not realize like um, how certain images are only seen in black and brown communities that aren't seen maybe in white communities um, or things, you know, or taking sometimes the terror out of, the, of, of uh, images uh, and what they evoke um, for black, black, uh, black people. Um, and then Catherine Elizabeth Patton is maybe one of the most talented photographers uh, that I know. Um, she you know, it does absolutely beautiful work. And she is just like the most down to earth, humble person in the world. And her, her photography is, is absolutely breathtaking. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, there, there's so many more artists, um, and then including artists that work with the collective. Uh, I know you had, um, I make mad beats on the show, but yes. everybody and unapologetic is incredibly talented. Yes. And, um, yeah, I, I have so much respect for the culture creators. Um, in our community and the work that they do. Yes, and speaking of the work that they do, you know, we have all been self-isolating during COVID-19. However, I know, you know, these artists are still flourishing. So how, uh, from your perspective, Rachel, what have you noticed about the effects of COVID-19 with the artists? Sure. 
So um, I'm going to take this conversation a little bit higher level. So without a doubt, this pandemic is, gone, is, is devastating and will continue to be devastating um, in every single way on, on people, um, and especially the culture community, because um, we have not ever truly invested in culture and culture creators in Memphis the way that other major cities have. Um, invested. So um, right now we know that the nonprofit sector, cultural sector, will lose $8.6 million between um, March, kind of when everything went into shutdown mode until June 30th, which is a lot of organizations' fiscal years. Um, but even as organizations reopen, they still won't be able to open at full capacity, which means that we're going to drag the losses out for probably until the end of this calendar year. Mm. On top of that, we know that 2,000 people will be affected by COVID-19, whether they are people who work in those cultural nonprofits or they're artists who um, make, you know, their living playing music or, um, or, or you know, are, are attached to the hospitality industry. So this is going to be devastating. There, you know, we have been working with Arts Memphis and Music Export Memphis um, around their artist emergency funds, and that's been super helpful. Um, both of the leaders of those organizations have done a great job. Memphis has been unique in the sense that those funds are actually open not only to artists, but people who also work in the cultural sector and also have worked in other aspects of music, such as um you know, set up, uh, you know, equipment, all of that stuff. Um, I think that inherently people are are built to tell stories, to try and create community, which is why I think that COVID-19 has been um, really hard on a lot of people mentally, especially those people who are sheltering in place alone. Um, it's very isolating. And so I feel like artists are thriving in one sense, um, switching to, you know, uh, uh, online mediums to be able to try and create a sense of community, whether that is, you know, them going live on Instagram to play music or um, creating, you know, benefits, you know, the Get Live a music uh, concert that happened a couple months ago, um, or if they just continue to showcase the work that they've been doing. Um, I think that that is, uh, you know, something beautiful that artists inherently do, but I want them to be paid for the work that they're doing. I want us to respect the labor that goes into the work that they're doing. And I want artists to be seen as people who are, um, are, are heavy contributors to the culture and well-being of a city and not something that's, like, nice to have. It, art is an ingredient in the cake, not the icing on the cake. Yes, yes. And that's something that I've noticed um, – just you know being a creative like you know if i tell you my price is a that's what it is and maybe even a little more (laughs) right oh my gosh like this makes me so mad like i just feel like cold cold with anger whenever people are like an artist will be like this is how much i charge to take your you know to take photographs and they're like cool can you do it for 50 bucks and i'm like are you insane the person yes. told you how much their their work because like you wouldn't go to fedex and be like can you give me a discount on the printing you have to do no yes. like that is just as valuable as anything else 
pay people what they're worth. Mm -hmm. And that's what I hope that as we build, hopefully, a new normal with COVID-19, that we correct these inequities and we really help individuals adjust their mindset that art and creativity is labor also and it deserves to be compensated fairly. Definitely, definitely, Rachel. Now, uh, we're going to kind of segue into some of our current events, something that is very alarming, but we're kind of, you know, shall I say, not surprised. Uh, We've all seen the video that went viral um, just a couple of days ago of George Floyd being killed by the Minnesota police. Um, The guy Mm -hmm. was actually pursued, I believe, for a forgery um, incident. And the whole matter just escalated. We saw the officer you know, bending down on his neck, the man repeatedly said, I cannot breathe. Everyone, it's probably like four to five officers, not one officer saying, hey man, maybe you should get up. You know, that bothered me so bad, but everyone is Mm -hmm. filming, everyone is watching. Rachel, what are your thoughts on this recent death of a black man, George Floyd, being killed by the Minnesota police? Yeah, um... I am, of course, you know, outraged and hurt, and I think that the thing that frustrates me the most is that all of these stories, whether it is George Lloyd or Ahmaud Arbery, it takes having to watch their violent deaths to get justice, to get any form of response. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's, and it's tiring. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, it's tiring in a way that is exhausting to your soul, right? Because mm-hmm. you also know that it can be anyone that you know and love, and there is no amount of respectability or degrees or, nice houses or nice clothes or nice cars that will stop any of this from happening. And, um, you know, the, the day before the, the video of George Lloyd, you know, went viral, you know, we had that incident in Central Park mm-hmm. and those incidences directly correlate to those types of deaths. Mm-hmm. And I think that the thing that, um, I think made me the most upset was, the fact that he said, you know, I can't breathe. And we've heard that before with another black man who was also murdered. And so it's like, at what point do we stop repeating these patterns down to like the same last word, you know? And so, you know, it is, it is frustrating and it is hurt. You know, it hurts. It hurts me to see, um, all of the people in my life, who have to witness that, but yeah. especially I would say the, the black men in my life who, who, you know, have to deal with those um, circumstances and the fact that that's just a part of, a part of life, like hopefully waking up in the morning, but knowing that it's not promised to you. Definitely. They, a black man has a huge target on his back end. You know, I have a 14 year old son and a six year old son, but the, 14 year old son he's you know very mature and 
mm-hmm. he sees these incidents and he's like why do they kill us because of our skin color like he's looking at it like that's the only thing they hate about us is our skin color like why is that bothering them so much mom and it's yeah. so hard to explain to him like because he, he really sees it as what is the big deal and right is is just really it's it's hurtful and i hate that my black boys will have a target on their back as they live life as well you know so for sure these incidences although you know we would hope that we would see less it's like they are mounting up they are mounting up so hopefully we will see justice for george floyd and um you know, I really appreciate you for coming on the pod today, Rachel. And look, we're getting yeah, all, all <laughs> sensitive and towards the end, but I definitely appreciate the work that you do and your contributions to the arts because it is definitely needed. And you have been blazing trails with your philanthropy, the work that you do with the collective. I really appreciate what you do, Rachel. So I want Thank you, you. Yes, ma'am. I want you to tell the audience how they can get in touch with you, um, how they can follow you on your platforms and see that the great work that you do in our community. Sure. Um, so I am on Twitter and Instagram and my handle is fearless Knox. Um, and I post, you know, pretty regularly to both. Um, also if you're not on either of those platforms, you can look me up on Facebook. It's, uh, my name, Rachel Lynette Knox. And, um, I hope to connect with you all. I would love to hear more about the work that you're doing if there are things that are happening in the cultural sector that you feel like I should be aware of, please let me know. I love posting that information, pushing it out, letting people know about the excellent work that's happening in Memphis um, because there's a lot of good here. There is. Thank you so much, Rachel Knox, culture advocate, philanthropist, and the program officer over there at the Hyde Foundation. You are definitely verbally verbally effective lady and we appreciate you thank you so much i appreciate you as well